welcome to Spilling the Truth. <laughs> <laughs> nah, today will be a today will be a fun little podcast. They're all going to be fun podcasts. That's a good point. They're all going to be great. I mean... We're drinking and talking. That's pretty much exactly if, what we want to be if doing. If we could have fun drinking Zima, like I think we could have fun drinking good wine. We did too. set the bar pretty low. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great way to go. Listen, we're going to do a Zima first, and then we'll work into fancy stuff later in life. So it's funny. I was actually shopping today at, in a wine store, and their rosés were out of control. They had more rosés than I've ever seen in a shop in the state of Arizona my entire life. And I I mean, they just stacks and stacks and stacks. I think they went a little overboard. A little overboard? They probably did one of those things where, like, we'll take, you know, 10 pallets because clearly they'll go through all of this, but then they ordered, what, a hundred different brands of rosé? It's like when I'm like, ooh, I really want some gummy bears. I'll, <laughs> I'll just buy them all. Buy all of them. <laughs> yeah, too, because you know when that store bought all of those rosés, they were like, oh, good, you know, people will drink more. And then all their Franzia and boxed wine probably all sold the most. Yeah, I just couldn't believe the sheer quantity that they had. I mean, this state was always difficult to sell rosés, but I think that they got a little too excited with the trend starting to get a little warm out here with the rosé. Yeah, they, they jumped in the deep end on that I, one. But then again, this is also a state you, you can drink it year-round. Was mean, it a, all French rosé? No, they had everything. Everything? I mean, they had... Multiple aisles. I just couldn't... <laughs> it was more rosé than I've ever seen in a set in my entire life. Like a life. pink hue to the aisle. <laughs> now, I'll bet you if that set was in another state, it probably would have been picked over and already sold you know, through. Whereas yeah. here, I think... I think that set's going to be just still full come December. It's amazing to me how many stores I go to and... You know, since it's 2018, a lot of the vintages I see are 14, 15, and 16 for reds and 17 for some whites. But there's a lot of, on the back of the shelf, things from 8, 9, 10. And you're like, oh, well, this worked out real nicely. I hope this made it standing upright for the last, you know, couple years, maybe. I don't know where that bottle's been, but I'll still take a chance on it, especially if it's only 20, 30 bucks. In those big stores, I do worry. But, you know, we were just talking about this. You know, I've been in Italy, and I've been in an open-air shop that has no air conditioning, that it's already warm in there. And I've seen a, you know, 15-year-old Barbaresco, and I'm like, there's no way that thing's still alive. <laughs> I'll buy it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah you, the vintage is what makes you buy it. You go, you know what? It's cheap enough. We'll take the shot at that. Let's give it good. a try. And I remember we bought an old vintage, like one of the uh, single vineyard prototories in Italy from this little shop. We're like, there's no way. I mean, this thing's been literally sitting in an open air window for 15 years. <laughs> it blew us away. It was so freaking good. Yeah, I can imagine that one. See, at least out in a place like, you know, if you're in basically the south uh, east area, you know, you might have enough humidity that the bottle's fine standing up the entire time versus something along the line of out here in Arizona, you're standing that bottle up, that cork's going to fail at some point for how dry it is. That's what I worry about, like, some of the old vintage stuff that sits in the big stores here. Um, stuff that's been sitting upright, you know, I was looking at a shot because I mean, I, those stores are so big. If it's not right, I could always take it back. Yeah. You know what you could also do? It's, <laughs> it's kind of shady, but if you go buy a bottle and it's not really good, just go gift it off to your wine friends. But look, I had this really old bottle I had for you. And if it doesn't make it, oh, too bad. I was really hoping it would make it. I think every group of friends has that one friend that they could just dump anything on. <laughs> we have that one friend. <laughs> Everybody has a Dustin. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody has a Dustin. <laughs> Dustin's our buddy who we will we'll drink every single wine with whether it's good or bad. And He'll be he, on at some point with yeah. us, I'm sure. I mean, he's got some great wines in his collection, and they've not always been stored properly. Often they drink great, but it's just this ongoing joke it's, with his corks. It's always, always super, super cooked sometimes. Yeah, and the corks, his corks are often so dry. 
I don't know. I'm, it's got to be a problem also with Arizona on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. Then uh, it's funny. So I've got Sarah now. She's kind of drinking some wines. Uh, she likes a lot of champagne, but she likes it when it's been cooked, like, or it's really, really old. So she has a really weird flavor profile for that one. So, yeah. So for today's podcast, what we decided to do is we're going to do a blind test. Uh, so Damien and I both went to a store, bought ourselves a bottle of wine, uh, brought it back and haven't told each other which one it is. I'm going to see if we can figure it out as we go. So let's talk a little bit about blind tasting. Did I say blind test? Yeah. I think I, it did say, I meant blind tasting. Well, we are blind testing it, I guess. Yeah. But, um, so blind tasting is a great way to hone your palate. It's a great way to kind of take away the, the preconceived notions of a varietal maybe you do not like. You know, for example, I myself say I don't like a lot of California Chardonnays. I love great Burgundies. If somebody puts a California Chardonnay in my glass, say, hey, Damien, try this California Chardonnay. Often my brain communicates with my tongue at that point and my olfactory system, and instantly I'm like, I'm not going to like this. And <laughs> so I, I've already prejudged the wines before I've ever tried it. Whereas if you all of a sudden poured me four white wines, you poured me four Chardonnays, Two, you know, Burgundies, you know, uh, Northern California and an Oregon Chardonnay, and I didn't know where they were from. I could go into that completely free and clear of any preconceived notions. Yeah, and it's kind of nice doing that too, so that it doesn't give you this idea of oh, I only like to drink this one style of wine. A Chardonnay is a good example because most of the people I meet at the winery just like their oaky, buttery style. But then, you know, I could put a Chablis down in front of them, or a Chablis style in my case. Um, and they go, oh, wow, that's so refreshing and nice. And, oh, yeah, it's a Chardonnay. And they're just blown away. They're like, wait, what? And, you know, they've never had the opportunity to sit down, try something different because they're so focused on one style. So just handing somebody a wine without telling them what it is, sometimes I find, especially at the winery, is just a really good idea to get people to branch out a little bit. And I always have enjoyed blind tastings because there's definitely a few times where I've tried something I've never had before, and I'm like, this is absolutely amazing. And it turns out it's actually a grape I already love. It's just from an area I'd never heard of. I mean, and for me also, do you remember that show, or I think it's still on sometimes, Hell's Kitchen, the Gordon uh, Ramsay? The Ramsay one? Is that the one where he is or isn't yelling at people? I think he's yelling at him in every episode. Sounds like <laughs> So uh, there's a, he blindfolds people, and he puts very common foods in their mouth. And he's like, it'll, sometimes it'll just be steak or duck, or it'll be asparagus or okra. And these are chefs who taste every single day, but he blindfolds them, puts it in their mouth, and is like, tell me what you're tasting, and rarely do they get it right. Yeah. Rarely. Now, if I if you know you're trying that duck ahead of time, you're instantly going to think, okay, this is going to taste like duck. But if you have no idea what this meat is going into your mouth, you're like, I don't know, like trying to figure it out. And that's what, the way it is with blind tasting wines. Also... One fun thing about blind tasting wines is you can't really do it alone because then you know it's in the glass. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So, it, so it means you have to have do it with friends. So yeah. it's a reason to get together with some some buddies, some industry people. Um, it's a good reason to throw a party. You know, you could easily say, okay, everybody bring a bag. I want you all to wrap it in either a brown bag. Uh, you can wrap them in tinfoil. Um, tinfoil works great because it covers it and you can't see anything really on it. Mm -hmm. Have everybody cut the foils off the top. Yeah, so definitely. You, so you get can't rid of the cork the, too. Yep, so you can't see the name. But if you have 10 friends all come over, everything's brown bagged and do it all blind and maybe have a little competition or a little contest and everybody vote which one they like best. And sometimes you'd be really surprised, like, which ones will come out on top. Like, 
every time we've ever done it, I've always been surprised. Where were we at? I think it was Cheryl Ann's house for the Super Bowl party. And uh, she had like six different decanters of all different Italian wines that people had brought. And um, honestly, even if she, you know, she wrote the name on every single one of them, but had she not done that and everybody would have just drank one blindly throughout the night, it would have been interesting to see what people had enjoyed. Because surprisingly, the one wine that everybody loved in a group of Argiano Salengo, Giacomo Brusso, like I think it was either his Nebbiola or maybe his Barbaresco and ones like that. It turned out to be a random Tuscan wine that everybody absolutely loved. Had no idea who the producer was. The vintage was rather recent, and we didn't even know the blend. And it was probably the best one of the night. And it was good that, you know, you could sit down and try, you know, seven different wines all in one sitting. And a little more fun, obviously, if you have no idea what you're drinking. And then if you hit something that really, really sucks, you don't necessarily offend the person that you just drank basically the equivalent of crappy grape juice. So, so I, I, I foresee John and myself doing a lot of these blind tastings on the show. Um, one, it's, it's a good exercise for myself because I get to hone my palate. Um, I get to try and guess what's in the glass as well. I'm finding this really funny because when I am actually looking at these two wines in the glass and they look like the exact same wine. Exact same color. <laughs> the color is the same. How funny would it be if, if out of the... 742 million bottles of wine in this world that we happen to get the same exact one. Truth be told, I was like halfway worrying about that a little bit. I thought it'd be hilarious because if we did this enough times, we might. I mean, we'll definitely do it occasionally. We get the same varietal, but what if we got the exact same bottle? Like I can tell you right now that these are just by trying these. So the one I bought and poured um, versus the one that he bought and poured, I could immediately tell you that one is definitely an American, or not necessarily American. I guess New World is the right term for it, but it's definitely like a. Um, a very oaky influence on one of them and almost no influ- oak influence on the other, just straight out of the gate. So at least I kind of can narrow down to me where in the world these are from. All right. So when you're blind tasting, where do you start? What's, what's the very first thing to do? So for me, it's oak. Honestly, it really, it really is. Cause I'm, I'm around so much oak in my winery that I've pretty much honed in like what smells like or what, with the noses of a French oak versus an American oak versus high toast versus like no toast. So there's a certain area that I can assume that it's from. So for instance, if I don't smell any oak on it, I'm kind of almost immediately assuming it's European. If I'm getting a crazy amount of oak on it, I'm immediately assuming it's either America or Australian or obviously maybe even Argentina or Chile otherwise, but usually mostly uh, American. And if it's a lot of American French toast, that crazy vanilla dill coconut right up front, I'm definitely assuming it's an American Cabernet, most likely right out of the gate. Or surprisingly, actually, even a Spanish Tempranillo. Yeah. That one kind of throws it out the window a little bit for me, but that's the one way I do it. Yeah, this the Spanish often use a lot of new oak. It's funny because people are like, you can actually smell what type of oak is on the wine. Like, <laughs> it, it Once you pick up on it, you know it. I had a wine buyer here in town that refused to try any wines that were aged in American oak. <laughs> and every once in a while, I would just throw it in there just to be an ass. <laughs> Dude, it's fun to do that. I love to take one of my cabs and like do a real small batch of the newest oak and just do it two or three times in a barrel to just... You don't even taste the wine at this point. It's just drinking a tree. And I swear, every time I release it, it's one of the most popular ones. I'm just like, oh, my God, people love this taste so much. He, he used to, uh, he'd always know. I mean, he was 100% accurate. Like, I, when he'd go down the line and, you know, try him on a, you know, nice European, and you know, uh, like a Chianti that was aged in, like, Slovenian oak or French oak or get through the rest of my portfolio and all of a sudden I throw that one Tempranillo that was American oak at him <laughs> and he would literally give me this look like really and then he wouldn't even taste it he would just dump it down the drain and be like move on let's move on <laughs> like, oh, 
damn it. That's funny too, because like, and this was was this a restaurant or a store? It was a restaurant. All right, that's if it was a really high end restaurant. I could see that making sense a little bit because you definitely don't want a wine where all you're getting is oak and then the oak's going to maybe overdominate whatever dish you're having with it. That's why I'm not, and I do agree a little more as I'm getting older that a lot of European wines pair very, very well with uh, very like rich foods or very flavorful foods and even subtle foods, I guess. So I guess food in general, but you know, it complements each other. I think the wine should complement the food sometimes, but every now and then I'll get a California wine or you know, even like an Australian wine that I'm like, okay, I'm just going to drink this because it's not really going to necessarily pair well with the food. And I'm sure there's a million Psalms out there who are like, what are you talking about? Of course, California wine pairs with these things. Yeah, there's definitely examples. But there are times when I have certain newer wines that all I can taste is oak. And even if I'm having food, like I can still just taste it. And maybe an hour, maybe two later, the oak maybe kind of blows off and the fruit comes out. But right out of the gate, that's all I get. And it might just be me. <laughs> I think here in America, we often release our wines a little too early. No, way too early. Um, especially some of our fine wines. And I think that it has to do with sometimes with the economy, that it's time to turn over your capital. Because the longer you hold on to it, the more money it's going to cost you. And some of these wineries, they, they need that cash flow. So it's time to, like, it's ready. Let's turn it over and tell people to age it for five years. Where in Europe, a lot of these wines especially their collector wines, there's laws that are put in place to say you can't release this wine for three years. So let me ask you this. What do you think did that in America? What do you think ruined that where, because a winery knows, the winemaker knows, they goes, oh, I made this amazing wine. If you drink it now, it's fun, but seriously, lay it down for 10 years. I mean, how many times are you go to a winery? Lay it down for 10 years, 15 years, five years, whatever. Oh, just, no, just drink it now. You know, your white wine should be what pays your bills. Well, your red wine should age. So who or what came along and everybody went, crap, we got to put the red wine out. Red bills. wine out now. Is it bills though? Because if you were long enough in there, let's say you're a nice winery right now and you're putting out your 2007, it's perfectly hitting a stride. It's peaking right now. You could raise your price a little bit more and now you're on seven and next year on eight and so forth and so on. So you've got that 10 year period. Or if you want to release one a little sooner or a little later, I'm wondering if maybe at some point distribution companies came in and were like, oh, well, we want your vintage now. We want it now. So instead of putting the onus on the winery to hold the wine for, that long period of time waiting and them deciding when they want to release it, that somewhere along the line, the distribution guys came and said, well, we want to take this. Well, we want to take this. Well, we want this new vintage and now the next one. And then finally it went from being the winery sitting and holding what they think is best to now it's on you, the consumer. It's on you to hold it for as long as you want. And the reality is you you and I both know the longest aging time is the car ride home most likely. Yeah. It's, it also has to come down to, the American consumer, the average American consumer, is not our palate. The average American consumer is not what you like to drink or what I like to drink. True. You know, there's a reason why stuff like, you know, say like Barefoots and Yellowtails are the number one and two selling wines in America. There's a reason why some of these crazy box wines, they just sell containers of them. You know, it's our palates are very different than everyone else's. So there's in America, people really, really do love big oaky wines. I always say people in America like big things. Yeah. When you go to Europe, people don't have these giant mansions, and they don't drive around in Escalades, and they don't have big sunglasses and big hair. Like they don't have the big giant dishes that we get like here in America for food, where it feeds eight people for one plate. Yeah, they don't have seventy-four ounce thirst busters over there. But so so, <laughs> our 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 wines tend to be bigger because that's often the way we drink. We drink whiskey that's aged in oak barrels. We like our 
tequila that's in Yeho and Reposado more than it's the all Blancos American oak too, because mostly. it's heavy oak. That's just the way we like to do it over here. Well, same thing with beer. Look at the most popular beers in America are double IPAs at this point. And even when it gets a little cold out, I see more. Uh, what do we have coming out right now? Pumpkin ales are coming out. That's a big beer because they're kind of built to be like almost porterish. But yeah, even porters and stouts are really popular. Big giant beers. Ironically, considering most people drink Bud Light or Budweiser, but craft ale wise, IPAs are huge. All right. So blind tasting. So it, uh, if you're actually going to be doing this at home and you're you know, going to go through and want to kind of break it down and look at it, I always say that before you even smell it, before you ever taste it, got to look at it. Got to just look around the, the wine. It's really nice to have a, a white piece of paper or a white tablecloth or something that you can hold the wine over. You know, we have a dark table, but I have a white legal pad in front of me. <laughs> now you do. <laughs> yeah, so if you just take like sheets of paper and hold it over, you can you could see a lot. And a lot of it has to do with the color around the edges. As a wine ages, often it'll get a little brickier around the edges. You'll get that darker color. It'll start to turn almost like an orange or a brick color as it ages. Where if it's nice and bribe, uh, vibrant and fresh looking, you can assume that it's a, a younger wine. Whereas if you start getting that bricky color, you can assume it's an older wine. So one thing I had also heard about aging and... I guess, I mean, it makes a little more sense, is if you had a very new wine, like real recent vintage, and you did the same thing, you hold it over your glass, that if you looked from the center to the outside of the edges, that if there's a slow, gradual fade from really dark in the center to slowly gets lighter to the outside, that it's an older wine, but on a newer wine, it goes, it's like dark, 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 and then immediate fade to the edges because it's a much younger wine. Is that, have you ever really noticed that? I've been noticing it on a few wines, but I'm starting to wonder if it's just the grape or, you know, because I, I haven't had enough old wines to determine if that's completely true or not. And I'll be honest, most of the time when we drink old wines, we're not sitting around with a white sheet of paper. We're just drinking oh, old wines. Oh, we're just drinking old wines, yeah. Yeah. Now yeah. that we're actually doing this right now. <laughs> and that's why I'm really excited to be able to do this and do this on a regular basis and actually break it down because this is actually going to teach me so much more than just sitting around drinking with you guys on a Thursday night. Oh, yeah. Which we'll do anyways. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, when I was in high school and I took tests, often I didn't know the answer, but I knew that there was a couple answers that were not the right answer, so I could eliminate those, and it increases your chances if you have to guess. Like, if you know that it's not, you know, C or D, okay, it's either A or B. I got a 50-50 shot then, too. When you're blind tasting, you're just looking at wines, often you can eliminate certain varietals instantly. Like, you know, there's certain varietals that are dark and inky. Like, you get those uh, tanats of the world, the uh, Sagrantino is Black Petite Syrah. And I, I don't think there's such thing as a Sagrantino that you could just like look right through. <laughs> I don't think it's possible. But, but they say the greatest Burgundies of the world you can read a newspaper through. Yeah. So so often just by looking at the wine and looking through it, you could, if you're trying to guess what's in the glass, and I could see right through it, I'm gonna I can eliminate sometimes Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, or if I look at it and it's dark and inky and like it's just like almost like muddied red water I can like all right there's no way that's pinot noir or gamay well it's like the my favorite one the nebbiolo grape has a crazy orange hue on the end even um i think it's petite verdot and sometimes cab franc has a like a purple edge around the outside when they're young so honestly like there is times where if i were to tilt the glass down and i could see that slight purple hue there would i'd be like oh that's a cab franc or petite verdot probably and then from the smell and taste i could go from there um, so I find it a little harder these days to do this, um, because I've had some Pinot Noirs recently that have been coming out of Fort Ross or honestly, like it almost doesn't matter. It just depends on the producer where they over extract the grape so much. And I love it because it's a huge Pinot, 
but it would look almost like, honestly, what's in our glass right now versus if you had a burgundy or an Oregon style where it's real light and real thin isn't the right word, but definitely not as colorful. So when I, when I smell these two wines, you're right. Like the, the wine you brought has, it smells to me a lot more uh, heavier handed on the oak. Very heavy handed oak. Whereas the one that I have and I brought doesn't smell as heavy handed on the oak. No, not at all. It, um, but I'm not getting I a lot actually of, smell the grape on it. But, a I'm, I'm, but it's not smelling super fruity either. No, it's not. It's, it's definitely a, I'm, my brain isn't really going to a lot of pro places with it because some of the smells aren't familiar to me with the one I brought. And even though I kind of knew what I was already getting, I'm kind of familiar with it mostly because yeah, the oak is so powerful, but maybe as it sits here and it warms up a little bit, I'll get some of the grape or excuse me, some of the fruit to come out a little bit. So what this is kind of reminding me of, um, smelling mine too, like is that it has almost like that pencil lead graphite and the wood comes through a little bit on that. It's, it reminds me of the pencil shavings as a kid, as you kind of went through and through the machine, you, yeah. you cleaned out that machine and like, you know, had to, as you dumped it all out and that pile of dust, <laughs> the pile, the, the pile of, of dust on the bottom, it was mostly graphite with you a little bit of wood. How many people might listen to this down the road and go, what the hell's a pencil? <laughs> Oh my God! I mean, that that might be a real thing ten years from now. Where people are like I've never or seen a pencil. pencil sharpener or pencil sharpener. Yeah, because everything's mechanical. mechanical pens and pencils. Yeah. So yeah, that's going to be something that goes out of goes away for a while on that the, whole smelling. The notes day area. of the number two pencils. Yeah, that's going away. Hey, how many other smells do you think will go down the road? Like fifty years from now, they'll be like, "Oh, it smells like this," and people will be like, "What are you talking about? I have no idea what that smells like because we've never experienced it before." Actually, I think one that could do it, in all honesty, is banana. Because I know the actual banana that we are used to right now is not the same banana our parents had, or even our excuse me, like even our great grandparents had. It was different because it eventually mutated, fungus killed it all. Now we have this one. So right now the banana that we have that we're used to smelling and tasting is going to go away in roughly the next twenty to thirty years. And this new banana that's coming out, this I believe it's a Filipino banana, it's not the same. It doesn't smell or taste the same. It's subtly different. So when we sit here. And try this like specific smell. It might go away after a certain time. I think our brains also the flavor that gets jogged in our brain is sometimes based off of the markers that we had as a kid. I got one. I've got one too. How about leather? When everybody goes crazy about being either vegetarian or vegan and never has any type of meat, they'll have no idea what leather smells like. True. Cigar box. If people outlaw cigars someday. Well, well, well. You know, when I think of you know when I think of banana or I think of apple or I think of grape, I actually start thinking mentally of the, the markers. I think of purple and yellow markers like or scratch and sniff yeah, stickers. Like, yeah. Like th those were weird representations of those flavors. Like I always talk about banana the runs. Banana runs, yeah. Because yeah, there's not, that's originally what your grandparents, that's what a banana tastes like to your grandparents. So I've given it to my dad and he's like, that's what bananas used to taste like. And I, I think it's disgusting. I think, assume that's a fake banana. He goes, no, that's what bananas used to taste like. So it's more like banana extract kind of that, that you have no idea what the hell. You've never smelled banana extract. I've never smelled banana extract. <laughs> I didn't realize that was a thing. <laughs> I think there's probably an extract of just about anything out probably there. Probably at this point. Well, if there's a if there's a vodka for it, then yeah, there's definitely an extract for it. Or if there's a go, if there's something you can use in baking, you know, uh, yeah. banana bread. I guess maybe they use banana extract. <laughs> Damn you, know me. I don't bake for shit. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, I'm gonna break down your wine a little bit. Okay, you break down mine. So I, 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 on the nose, it smells of bright, fresh fruit. Um, very, very, very vibrant. Um, smells like a very young wine. Um, 
the fruit that comes across on the nose is uh, some darker fruit, though, more like raspberries or briar fruit, fruit with prickers. Um, <laughs> I like that briar fruit with prickers. I've yeah. never heard that before. Like, also, when you're tasting and, and you know, when you're thinking about psalms and all the different flavors, they always say, you know, there's, there's the fruit characteristics and there's the non-fruit characteristics. And you kind of got to remember the both. Like, when I was talking about my wine and I was like, the graphite and the pencil lead, mm-hmm. that's not berries, cherries, raspberries, banana runs. Yeah. So I always try and come up with two or three flavors in my brain that are fruit and then some of them that maybe aren't fruit. Okay. So for me, I go uh, clearly a very different route. So, because there's some flavors and aromas that I'm getting that are a little different. Honestly, I'm doing yours now, uh, not mine. But when I first smell this, like the one thing that comes to mind is the lack of oak. But there's a, a richness to it almost in the very, very back, kind of like what you're saying with pencil shavings, where I'm like, okay, it definitely sat in oak, but the barrels that it used must have been used or probably all neutral. So it's definitely being held in it because there's like a softness to nose. But there's also a, and this isn't to be taken wrong, but there's a sourness on the back of my nose, which makes me think that the the grapes that they used were probably like higher in acidity so that that way this will be a little bit more fresh. Like had it not tasted it and already tried it, I would say it definitely got a like smell of almost underripe fruit, like an underripe cherry or an underripe strawberry. So, and that's just from it kind of opening up a little bit. So I'm going to be honest, the wine that I brought is screaming with acidity. And what I mean, yeah, (laughs) what I mean by that, I mean, it's so polar opposite of the wine that you have with the acidity, because this literally feels like, like a dentist just pricked my gums with like Novocaine. (laughs) Just your mouth is just running like crazy. Oh, every single like, like tiny little pore, like inside my mouth is just screaming right now because of all the acid in this wine. Um, there's ways that some say, you know, press your tongue to the top of your mouth and things you could do to help it kind of... Yeah, I've always taught to press your tongue to your mouth and see how much your mouth runs. I get a little bit from that numminess, the... Uh... If, if you take this wine, literally, and swish it all around your mouth, and also when you're tasting wine, tasting wine and drinking wine is very different. When you're drinking wine, it's only touching about, you know, 15, 20% of your mouth. It's rolling across your tongue, maybe not your whole tongue. It rolls down your palate into your belly, and you get happy. Whereas when you're tasting wine, you really want to touch every part of your mouth. You want to top, bottom, left, right. You want to work it out. We used to call it wine yoga. That uh, <laughs> Literally, it's like keeping having scope or mouthwash in your mouth. Okay. You know, you know, I always say keep it there for five seconds, swish it all around, swallow it or spit it, and then exhale. And then you get a whole different appreciation of that wine. It just has, it takes on all different characteristics. And when you do that with this wine, it really showcases the acid. <laughs> There's a lot of guys listening to this that just looked at the girlfriend, just stared at him right now. Now for this, for the one I brought, so here's the really funny thing. I, uh, I'm actually using the nose on the one I brought to cleanse my, like the palate of my nose basically so I can keep trying yours. So what I'm learning, what I'm getting from this is the one I brought when I'm smelling it now that it's been sitting here is the oak didn't quite integrate into the wine as well as I think it can. And that's maybe because they probably used way more than they meant to. So when they probably first picked it, it was probably they thought it was going to be overripe. And so they said, okay, well, we'll add a little more oak to it to give it some structure. And then maybe the fruit just kind of died on them a little more than they thought. What characteristic is giving you that flavor in your mouth? Like you're, you're, you're saying that you're getting it, but what's the... Because I can smell... How did I find this? So the oak isn't subtle. It's really predominant. And it's even now that the wine's opening up more, so is the oak. It's 
opening up a little more and it's almost starting to smell more bourbony. Um, so it's almost like a whiskey style and, uh, and the fruit's not coming out too much for me, but when I taste it, it's definitely there. But right now it's almost like the oak is dominating the wine still. There's almost like a, a chalkiness to the wine. Like when you put it in your mouth, like almost, Oh, the tannin on this is crazy. <laughs> so I was wondering, it's, it's definitely a lot. And that's the other thing too, by the way, and that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. So the tannin on that, that's coming out of this is more oak tannin to me where it's not. Like there's some wines I can give you some tannin where it's real big and your whole mouth is immediately just lit up. Like if you have like a Nebbiolo and even some caps, but in some cases you get that dusty fine one. This is a hard, harsh tannin almost, which reminds me of almost too much oak used into it. Now, another thing with me, when, when I taste your wine, um, it's tasting to me like a lot of ripe fruit. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is if you, if you, it's the difference between a fresh grape and a raisin. A, a raisin essentially is a grape that has been dried down. Yeah. If, if, if you have your grapes that have been sitting in warm climate and they've been sitting in the sun, often that grape, especially if it's hung a little too long, will start to take on a raisiny characteristic. And you'll get a prune, a raisin. Those are certain flavor profiles that often kick out that you actually get. You know, They're very prominent mm -hmm. in a warm climate red wine. So, you know, when you're getting into some of those, say, like Lodi Zins, yeah. you're, you're going to get that raisiny characteristic. You get it in some Australian wines. You get it, I mean, Paso Robles wines. Some of those very warm climate red wines will take on raisiny characteristics. And so as you're blind tasting it, these are the things I think about as I'm blind tasting it. I'm trying to figure out what it is through deduction. Like, just by looking at it, I eliminated probably 25 varietals instantly, you know, just by looking at it. Yeah. Then I smelled it, and I'm like, all right, I could probably eliminate a country or two. It's probably not. Oh, yeah. It's probably not French. It's probably not German. It's so I can I can say okay. It's probably not these two or three countries. So yeah, especially once you get that overripe characteristic. Yep. So so it's 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 a, for me. I'm getting a warm climate wine that's fairly ripe. That's been aged in some toasty oak. And to me, so then I'm, I'm I'm eliminating certain countries. So now I'm saying okay, it could be Spanish, could be Portuguese, could be American, could be South American. I'm not getting any of that minty eucalyptus characteristic you sometimes get out of Australia, so I'm not thinking Australia. So this is the way my brain works as I break these wines down. Um, I have an idea of a first guess of what it might be, just as far as like a varietal, um, but I want to kind of keep going through it. Yeah. So for mine, the one that you brought, breaking it down, uh, same thing, going off the nose and not getting a crazy oak influence, I would immediately think Europe. So I'm at least going to start there and break it down from there so i'm thinking europe i'm thinking the fact that there's a lot of acid in this wine and i taste it and it's not over dominating fruit that they're not usually letting it hang too long so it's either a cooler year or just from more or less nominal picking time they're not going for an overripe the tannin on it is a lot softer so they're not crazy over extraction on it at all but it still has a ton of fruit flavor to it so now I'm like, okay, so it's not a very tannic wine, because if I have a very tannic wine from Europe, they definitely let it show, especially in a place like Italy and Spain. So it's a lot of acidity. You're right. Definitely after you try it, by the way, my mouth is running like crazy. So <laughs> Right? Yeah. Especially after you did the whole mouthwash scope thing. And so the other thing is, though, is that the fruit that's coming out of it isn't 
overpowering. It's not like, oh, there's cherry. Like there's some Pinot Noirs I've had in California that I'm like, that reminds me of an icy, just a straight up icy, or in some cases like flat cola or like a Coke or Dr. Pepper or something like that. This is subtle, like the little bit of cherry in there, the little bit of strawberry that's in there. So it's all light. So it's either coming from a much cooler climate or it's like I said, I'm staying in the European area for at this point, just because of all the things coming together. All right, so and it tastes familiar, but I can't, quite get there yet so also, we've just started to, so. you, you've eliminated a couple countries I'm pretty probably. i'd be or a couple I would be, states yeah i would be very um confident in saying that this is not an american wine and if it is an american wine then it's a newer producer that's trying to get away from the oak and influence or it's a very very old producer who stuck to his guns and never changed his perspective or something but I'm, I'm definitely going, I'm just going to stay with Europe right now with this wine. I'm going to let it warm a little bit. Oh, the other big thing is I don't have a crazy alcohol kick. So I'm starting to get the alcohol on the one I brought. I definitely got the burn in the back of my nose a little bit when I took a smell from the last one versus this one I didn't. So that's where I'm at right now with these. <laughs> Give us a little more. I'm yeah. myself a little more, yeah. I mean, it really is, when you're, when you're blind tasting, it's actually great to do two or three or four glasses at once. When you go to a tasting, like a professional tasting, if you go to a seminar, they typically pour you all the wines, so you can kind of bounce around. You can taste wine A, B, C, D, go back to A, go back to D. You can kind of compare and contrast. Yeah. Because if you just tasted one wine, like you just did my wine, and that was it, and we finished my wine, and we poured your wine in the glass... You kind of forget some of the stuff that happened in the first glass. Yeah. And having these two next to each other, they really, you could showcase bookends of the types of wines they are. Because yeah. to me, I'm, I agree with you on this. To me, this one does taste like it's more new world. One tastes more old world. And for those of you that are listening, uh, old world wines are going to be your European countries that often name the wine after a town. And a new world wine is often comes from more than what the new world country, America or South America. Um, often they have a little bit more oak, a little more aggressive oak. Um, to me, new world wines are a little more fruity often, whereas old world wines tend to be a little more rustic, a little more refined in some ways. Um, now, so, there's, there's an exception to every single rule out there. Yeah, and especially at this point with 3,000 different grape varietals, and I imagine 100,000 plus producers of wine. Yeah, you're going to get crazy things all over the board. You, so, could, you could take the same varietal and grow it on this, a hit, the same, same hill, hill. <laughs> and each and every row will taste different based on the ex, the soils underneath, the, clone the, the, the drainage. The I mean, every little thing matters. Yeah, and we'll do that with the... We should do the Barbaresco one where it's the same predatory, same year, and different sites, and just crazy blows my mind and how different the same grape varietal can taste. And So real quickly, going back to yours, just because I now that I poured this, so... Looking at it, I would assume it's a more of a younger style one, or a, excuse me, a recent vintage one, but there's a, a barnyardy characteristic coming out of it right now. Almost not like Brett, but that barnyard stuff. So now I'm starting to lean more towards French or Italian at this point with that characteristic. It, it, right when you pour it, it has that. Right when you pour it. And, and what he means by that barnyardy, it's that kind of that almost musty, uh, hay, Farmhouse animal, animal. Yeah. petting like, zoo. It, yeah, if you go to a petting zoo, there's or like a game farm, there's that scent that every yeah. single petting zoo has. It'd be like if you lived by a zoo, you were within like 
let's say 10 houses down and on the one random day you get a breeze in your direction you go oh oh yes we can smell the zoo today and, and like it's, it's and, super faint but you know it's there and it's not necessarily all pure fertilizer because sometimes i will say you know this wine smells like you know horse butt this wine smells like but it, yeah it, it, and to me that's the extreme of it um but yeah there is definitely a little bit yeah, of it a, goes away after a couple seconds yeah try as soon as i popped the cork i was like i smiled because i love barnyardy wines yeah. i do and i was like oh this is smelling good yeah, so that's that's I'm leaning towards because I've had it in some French wines. I have it enough Italian wines. I haven't had enough Spanish wines to really find like certain characteristics within it. Like I could tell you if it's a Grenache, and I could probably nail like a Tempranillo, but it doesn't mean I know the re- there's you know a thousand different varietals in Spain. <laughs> Black pepper now too on it. Black pepper. I'll come around to that one so, in a second. So, so another reason why John and I throw flavors at each other is because this is how we hone our palates. People ask me. David, how'd you end up with such a good palate? Well, I drank with other people that would say, oh, I'm tasting this, and then it jogs my memory, and I could say, oh, you're right. It does taste like black pepper. Oh, it does taste like lychee. Oh, it does. And the more you do this with other people, the better you'll get at it. Huh. Oh, I'm choking. <laughs> I swallowed that the wrong hole. No. Um, is it, yeah. Does it taste uh, just as it tastes earthy as good as I down the other hole? Uh, <laughs> that's a fun one to do. Yeah, no, I get that a little bit now that you say that. Very lightly. I was going to say, hey, I taste it, but then I tried to breathe at the same time I tried to swallow. So, yeah, no. Um, yeah, I get a little bit of that. I also got a little bit of uh, almost like a roasted chili. Not a red chili, but like a green chili, like on the faintest, littlest amount uh, on the nose. Is it So for me, like there's wine. There's been a lot of times I've made wines where I just went, I'm not going to make a wine this year just because I got the grapes so underripe that there's a green bell pepper or jalapeno pepper like characteristic to it that's so over dominating that I think it ruins the wine. Ironically, being in Arizona, it'll probably do well if I start doing like jalapeno wine. But sometimes there's just things you can't push that that green note, basically. And that doesn't have it, but it's it's so subtly there that it's almost like it was kind of purposely done, which again leads me towards a place like Europe where they, they don't overripe it. They leave it right where they think it's appropriate to pick. So speak of picking, harvest started. That's right. It's officially August. What are we at? 23rd? Today? Oregon started Whatever. picking. California started picking. I saw whites coming in from Central Coast. Arizona uh, was picking a week ago. I think some of the champagne people are starting to pick. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be a unique year. It is. I think overall, most of the places have had decent years. I know back east of the United States has had a lot of rains. I think upstate New York's going to have the a challenge. Finger Lakes are going to have a hard year. Yeah, from all that rain. Mm-hmm. Um, the vineyards in California from the fires, for the most part, were spared damage. Yeah, the wind was pushing it all northeast. Now, it's going to be what kind of smoke taint happens, and there's going to be some certain areas are going to have, and we were talking about this before, is the, the smoke taints I think is going to come through a bit. Um, granted, there's a lot that can still happen. I mean, late frosts, late hail, late. I mean, there was a hailstorm here in Arizona in Phoenix, 110 degrees, and it was hailing. Yeah, hailed yesterday. Yeah, yeah. And if that that whole storm system that hit us traveled south into our, you know, grape growing region, I mean, we get monsoons like crazy out here. You never know where they're gonna hit. They just randomly pop up, and we've had two hurricanes come up the Baja this year and just dump all that water all across the Sonoida Wilcox region and push itself up into the cottonwood area as well but from what i've read it seems like around most of the major growing regions it's been a pretty favorable year so far i wonder if we're gonna have those problems over the next few years especially a lot more now 
where just like in Burgundy, they have massive problems with hail as the climate's changing, that California is going to have all these problems, and even eastern Washington with fire. So their biggest challenge will always not necessarily just be Mother Nature itself, but now they have to deal with smoke constantly from some part of that state burning to the ground. So who knows at this point? <laughs> I mean, there's there's a certain amount of burning that goes on in vineyards regularly. I mean, a lot of countries actually allow burning in the vineyards. But um, you wouldn't do it when you're picking your grapes, is what I'm saying. True. Yeah. So... You know, I mean, I know last year, 2017's fires were insane because they were in Napa and they were in Sonoma versus this one is obviously devastating Clear Lake area and Mendocino County, but it's spared Napa and Sonoma for the most part. Because like I said, but Eastern Washington has a ton of fires going on right now, too. So I wonder how their grapes are surviving. <laughs> Meanwhile, Oregon's hanging out in the middle, just, you know, well, being here all hipster like whatever. We'll keep going with our weird grapes and Pinot Noir and extremely overpriced beer as much as I love Oregon beer. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of breweries up there. Uh, there, the, there are more breweries, I think, around like in Oregon than any other state or something like that, or like per. I capita. believe, man, they've got nothing but goats and beer up there. Yeah, it's the um, only place I ever saw somebody walk a pet goat. Strip clubs. <laughs> oh yeah, tons of strip clubs it up was, there. It, I actually, I saw so many on my last trip to Portland a couple of weeks ago for work that I actually had to ask the rep. I was like, "Is this normal, or am I just in a really shady neighborhood?" He's like, "No, we have more strip clubs in Portland than any other city." Dude, I wonder if they have like a special representative who's like, "All right, you've got the uh, strip clubs, and that's all because you know how to deal with them." So, all right, your whole job is to go sell all of our champagne and whiskey at the strip club. There was one that was near my hotel that I thought of. It was a twenty-four hour strip club. I mean, aren't all strip clubs twenty-four hours? Or am I crazy? I don't know. I'm not, I've only been to a strip club once. It's not my thing. I just remember where my dad's old office was growing up as a kid. He had a strip club across the street, the late girl's place, and it said you could have breakfast there. And I just always was like, wow, that's gross or delicious. Who knows? <laughs> it's got to be the worst shift to work is like the 6 a.m. shift. <laughs> <laughs> While they're serving bacon and eggs. <laughs> <laughs> Those poor girls. Are, hey, can you take your top off and pour me some more maple syrup, please? You know there's some guys that probably go to that that don't even care about the girls. They just want the breakfast. Meanwhile, there's that one guy listening. Like, hey, asshole, I love going in the morning. Their eggs are delicious. Yeah. They probably do a deal, too. I'm sure it's like probably like all you can eat, like five bucks. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Cinnamon's pouring on more maple syrup onto my bacon and eggs and waffles. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I always wonder how that works for the people who sell liquor not not liquor like wine liquor is easy to sell at a strip club i imagine and champagne's got to sell like great they just walk in like you're with dom cool we'll take you know 50 cases of it but if you're walking you go listen i want to sample you on some wines they're like dude we are a strip club we just need like a chardonnay and a cab for certain people yeah like they, 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 it can't be high end there's nobody going to a strip club go like, can i get some lafitte over here please <laughs> yeah they probably have one red one white and a huge champagne list the I mean, champagne list is two pages deep <laughs> well you would think it's like you're not going to the Cabernet room. It's the champagne room. It's the champagne. <laughs> <laughs> like this is America, damn it. It's a sparkling wine room. Yeah. It's oh. a freedom room. <laughs> it's a cremant room. <laughs> oh, God bless strippers. They probably push more champagne on America than oh, rappers do. Oh, they do. Yeah. I mean, I, just in general, I've actually talked to people in the business, and those are typically the best accounts for the champagne houses. I guarantee it. Because guys that have money, they just want to throw yeah. it away. And yeah. and you know, the girls are like, oh, well, buy this $1,000 bottle that cost them $50 to purchase at the wine, or at the uh, distribution level. <laughs> so thank God for strip clubs and sparkling wine industry. What are you thinking of that tasting now? By the way, we're back on wine. We're not talking about strippers. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I'm still trying to break it down. At first, I thought I might have known what varietal it is. Now my brain's thinking something else um, as the wine is opening up and changing. See, now for me, the fruit on the one that I brought is starting to come a little more. That oak is tailing down a hair. It, it's still kind of aggressive on the oak. Like, it's, I mean, it's, it's never going to come off of that. L- late in the palate, it's still... <laughs> I'm, I'm catching oak barrels more than wine. It's Mike Tyson of oak, and it's just running out of steam. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still there. Yours, on the other hand, I'm enjoying this one. I don't know what you brought yet, but I'm really liking this. This is... it's so, You know what? This is nice, because it's something... The one that I brought is not something I would drink... Like if we were outside or probably by itself, like I'd probably eat it with some food versus the one that you brought. While it looks the exact same in color and everything, it's light enough where I could definitely just drink this on its own. And actually, yours almost looks a little lighter. Yeah, now that I'm like looking at it, it does actually a little bit. That's surprising y- to me. Y- yours has a little has more color to it. You know, it is those. Yours has a little more strawberry red color to it that ruby red yeah where yours is i mean where mine has a little bit more of a darker hue to it i'm assuming the glasses i mean we've got them in two different glasses but it's not going to affect it that much well man that thing that's that's delicious yeah so should we unveil them soon, or should we make some guesses, some deductions? We're about 45 minutes in or so, 40 minutes in, I, I think. It's, I think it's about the right time, because then we could talk about the wines themselves. Talk about the region, maybe. So what do you think the one I brought is? So break it down the way you think, where it's from, what you think it is. I, like I said, I, I eliminated France and Italy for the most part right away. Yeah. I could see maybe Italianish with some of the new producers that are maybe oaking some stuff in Tuscany, but... Mentally, I instantly thought California or Washington. Okay. And and as I started drinking it with the the oak manipulation on it and the the, the richness of it, it didn't quite have a Cabernet characteristic to it. I was actually thinking, but also maybe a Bordeaux varietal or something that's in that same family. Okay. So I started thinking, you know, possibly Merlot from maybe Washington, maybe Petit Verdot. Um, maybe petite or uh, as far as the region, I'm thinking two two very different grapes there. (laughs) No, I know, but depending on where they're grown too, because because if you're because if it's Lake County versus Paso Robles versus yeah uh, Walla Walla, you know, and you grow those varietals in different regions and areas, they're going to take on very different characteristics. Yeah. So, let me take one more sip. All right, I'm gonna take. Go ahead and try this one too. Because I was thinking Petit Verdot at first, because it was the the chalkiness kind of the way it was coming out. But you didn't get. I'm only gonna say, did you get like that crazy floral characteristic? But I wasn't that getting Petit the, gets off. But I wasn't getting also. Uh, Petit Verdot gives off a lot of blueberry to me. Like okay. I always get a ton of blueberry. That's interesting. I got to try a Petit Verdot right. one day then. So I'm gonna say <laughs> that just eliminated it. Northern California Cabernet Franc. I don't want to say Napa. I, 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 I'm, I'm thinking more even like Lodi or Lake County. Maybe I could see maybe Paso. So you're going warm climate Cab Franc from California. Do you want to break a year in there too while you're at it? <laughs> 2016. Well, sir, you are wrong on the year. It's tw- 2009. Whoa. Napa Valley Cabernet Franc. Oh no way! Yeah. Yes. 
Let me pull this over real quick. Phrasing. Look at this. Napa Valley Cab Franc. Holy shit. Bam. Congratulations. I'll I'll, you know what? I'll take that. And actually, I can't believe the vintage. That does not taste like an 09. It doesn't. That's I saw even, it. Like I said, remember when I holy said shit. I found things tucked in the back of something and it was pushed back there and I went, you know what? I'll take an old vintage shot today. Wow. Great guess, dude. That was fantastic. And seriously, by the way, for everybody listening, I really didn't show him this in any way, shape, or form. And I was watching him, so I know he didn't look at it. No, no. We actually uh, bagged these up with us in different rooms. And uh, All right. So, so, so the characteristics. So it, it was close to Cabernet. But I said I started eliminating varietals. And I started saying, okay, it really does remind me of a Bordeaux varietal. But it's not Cabernet. It's not velvety like a Merlot. There was that chalkiness that was kind of coming across. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't getting, and this is actually amazing for Cab Franc, because usually Cab Francs throw off a little bit more vegetal characteristic. You tend to get a little That's bit. That's what I was worried about was if it was going to have that green bell pepper taste, because if you don't grow a Cab Franc right, Man, that green note comes out very hard. And that's why I started thinking maybe Washington, especially with that the heavy-handed oak on it, because mm-hmm. often you get a lot, to me, I get a lot more aggressive oak out of some of the Washington wines. But I'm, I'm proud of myself. Awesome. <laughs> All right, so let's You're see so if I can screwed. Bring, yeah, I'm totally screwed. <laughs> a single varietal, same thing. It's not All a blender. Right, so, All right, so I'm going to, I'm sticking with, especially this is warming up a little. All right. It is extremely light tan, and so it's a thinner skin grape. The flavor on it, to me, there's like almost very little oak influence, which points to, like I said, a France, Italy. I don't think there's still like a, a ripeness to it that I wouldn't put it in like a Switzerland, Germany, or I don't like I, I don't know any other Eastern Europe period, like a Greece or Croatia or anything like that. So I'm not going with anything of that. It's not crazy tannic, so like I said, thinner skin grape, so probably nothing French. It's not a Pinot Noir, so I can get that out. It definitely doesn't have the Gamay flavor that I was looking for, which I assume when I looked at it and had that black bell pepper that I thought came out. So I'm going with Italy because it's not crazy vegetal like I get some a lot of French wines. There's still a fruity characteristic. That little barnyard popped out in there. I, I want to reach, but the fruitiness isn't there for Dolcetto. It could be, or like, honestly, I, the one grape is my hate-love relationship sometimes is Barbera, because when I get certain Barberas, they're so overpowering and very specific rubbery taste to it that I, I, I just don't like it. It almost reminds me of a Pinotage, but when you get a great Barbera, it's light and easy. But this has got too much color to be Barbera. It's, it's too purple. There's too much, there's just too much color. So if I was to say, where am I going to go with it? Uh, like cooler climate, low alcohol. Um, maybe something closer to the coast or pulled into Piedmont. So I'm going to reach and say Dolcetto from Piedmont. So what do you think? Or what is it? All right. So is it, a, a, you, you, you are, you are fairly right on a lot of characteristics. Uh, you're wrong on the country. Really? You, you narrowed down to the couple countries it could have been. You just picked one, you were 50, 50 chance. And you got it wrong. I got the wrong. It is French. It, it is French. Okay. Which, which, you know, it's pretty amazing when you start thinking about just smelling it and tasting it. You can narrow it down to one or two countries pretty easily. Um, so it's French. Warm climate, cool climate, mid-climate? I'd say that mid-climate. It's not warm enough because, like I said, it's not overripe and the alcohol is not there. So let's say mid-climate. So if it's going to be a French wine, it's probably going to fall in, like, the middle of, like, the Cote d'Iron area, like a Chateauneuf. Because now that I can look at it and say maybe Grenache even. I couldn't do 
because our, our our stipulation was single varietal. Single varietal. So because I was looking at Gigandas, I was looking at a couple Rhone blends, and I decided not to. I was actually thinking of Cornas, which is going to be Syrah. Um, I couldn't find a good Cornas that I really wanted to bring. Okay. So is that that's a Cote Roti? No, it's Cornas. Which I'm not familiar with Cornas. We'll drink one. Syrah. Of these All right, excellent. Um, so I went with something to me that's got a special place in my heart. Um, from France because it's a wine that to me has a ton of characteristic. It's so drinkable and it's very underrated. All right, Jira. <laughs> there, there are there are ten cities that are allowed to make the high end version, or ten towns that are allowed to make the crew version of this. But this is going to be Gamay. Is it really? And it's going to be uh, Cru Beaujolais. This is Cru Beaujolais. Wow, that's crazy. So I how, never, it's so different. So this is one This of, wasn't the Beaujolais I was expecting no, at all. No, th- this, is, this is how serious Cru Beaujolais can be. Because people think Beaujolais, they think Beaujolais Village, or they think Beaujolais Nouveau. So Nouveau is the, the fresh fermented grapes, and mm-hmm. they're releasing it. That from, has a shelf life of, what, three weeks at most? Yeah, so they use what's called carbonic maceration, to let the grapes just start fermenting naturally right away. They press it fresh, and it's basically like alcoholic fruit juice, and it's released November of the harvest they picked it. I feel like I should have gotten that when you like you said that black pepper came out, but I was so... what was We had a gamay recently that was so potent on the black pepper, and that... You know what, though? Now that I'm even saying it, this is going to sound really stupid, but now that I'm saying that sour characteristic that I was talking about earlier, I get that from gamay. You nailed the two of the most... Two of the characteristics that's in Gamay, though. High acid, low tannin, low alcohol. Yeah. That's three, but still. This high is, acid, low tannin. This is delicious. I really enjoyed Like I said, this is, a, this is a fantastic just drinking wine. So one of the probably most recognized crews of Beaujolais, and probably the one that's got the least reputation of all of them. Okay. This is Saint-Amour. Saint-Amour is one of your more northern, or it's either the most northern or the second most northern. I think it's the second most northern of all the crews. There's 10 crews of Beaujolais. So people that kind of study them, there's certain ones that people gravitate towards. People usually only gravitate towards Saint-Amour on Valentine's Day. Ah, of course. Because you can play They've off the They've got the, the little heart on the label, totally. too. Totally. But I'd say out of all out of the crews, this is not the one that people typically see. That's go what for, we were talking about earlier, man. You do the right marketing, you can do super well. But to me, Bouge- Cru Beaujolais is very underrated in the markets, and you know, it's a great value. Usually, your Cru Beaujolais are going to be twenty dollars or less. Yeah, they are, they go with all sorts of food. You and I could have this with just about any type of cuisine. It's, it's hands down one of the top three most underrated grapes that people can drink. But the problem is also is if you go and you try and if you're not. If you don't know what you're going to get getting Beaujolais, you might pick up a bottle of Beaujolais Nouveau by accident and yeah. be like, I hate this. Or maybe you had Beaujolais Nouveau and now you won't even try this. Well, when we, when we were at Wine Warehouse, we had three crew Beaujolais, one from, I think, Louis, Louis Jadot had one. or uh, Oh, Morgan. Morgan was the one that we had, the one with the face on it. And then we had a random one. And then Barry had bought uh, Beaujolais Nouveau, but he kept it for a year. And we just and it just sat there in the fridge, and we opened it up one day, and it was one of the worst things we ever drank. Just because you're like, yep, that was definitely not meant to make it past a few days. I mean, there's no oak in that wine. That wine is just meant to. It's meant to celebrate the harvest. It's this is the most casual region of all of Burgundy. It's the southern portion of Burgundy. I think it's probably the last towns of Burgundy. Yeah, and it's very casual. Like they they don't they literally they, throw a giant party for for Beaujolais Nouveau, don't they? Like yeah, just they, a massive drink party. <laughs> yeah, they don't take it too serious. You know, people in Burgundy take their wine very serious. Yeah, most of the Beaujolais that's actually grown probably gets consumed before December every year in Nouveau. Yeah, so then they have Beaujolais Village, 
which is going to be from all the different villages, and it's a different blend, and it's sometimes blends of different areas. Um, and then you have your crew Beaujolais, and your crew Beaujolais are the ones that are... I don't even. I can't even say that they're really sought after because there's not super expensive Cru Beaujolais, but they're so special. I think the most expensive one I've seen. You've seen this. Yeah, we sold ours at twenty two, twenty three dollars, and they're absolutely amazing. Yeah, I went with the uh, the Cab Franc has a special place for me only because over the longest time trying Cab Franc, I hated every every single one that I had tried. It was they were very underripe. So they always had that green bell pepper taste to it. They were never good. They were like $9, $10. And then I had had it from, uh, I believe the first one I had was from Hourglass. And it was one you poured on accident that one night uh, where you thought you were pouring Merlot. We had the Cab Franc. And I was like, holy crap, this is what this tastes like? And then I went down to Turnbull and went, oh, my God, this is amazing. And so I've tried a few French ones. And I do like French version Cab Franc. It's light, it's easy, but for some reason, being you know American and drinking the bold stuff, the uh, Napa Valley-based Cab Franc is absolutely amazing. Yeah, Morgan, there we go. So right now, we're looking at a map of the 10 crews of Beaujolais, um, and from bottom to top, we're going to play the Jonathan Ruins all-the-name game. All right, you here ready? we go. One to 10. All right, number uh, one. Sommelier's cringe. Bruly. <laughs> oh, so you're starting at the bottom. Yep. All right. Yeah, what did I say? Start from the top? Start from the bottom. All right, Bruly. Brule. Cote de Brole. Oh, Jesus. Regine. Rene. Rene. Yeah, we're going with Rene. Yeah, that was the one that we sold. Uh, Morgon. Chirubles. Flore. Moulin Avent. I can't see that yellow. That's terrible. It's a terrible yellow color. Chenasse. Yeah, I probably would have guessed Chenasse. Uh, Julien and Saint Amour. Not bad. Yeah. You did pretty well. Fleury. Fleury. I think there's a, there's a famous hockey player. Peter Lefleur. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Lefleur. So Peter Lefleur. Lefleury. Lefleury. <laughs> so. The Fleury. Who is, was Peter Lefleur from? What was a... Uh, uh, oh, my God. That movie's right on the tip of my tongue. Crap. All right. I'll figure it out later, like, at the end this of the show. A, this, like, isn't oh, a, this isn't a dodgeball Peter Lefleur. Yeah, Peter... Yeah, there it is. Yeah, dodgeball. <laughs> yeah, dodgeball. The Ocho. <laughs> the Ocho. Go back to episode one. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, so so really cool to try these two wines that are just so very, very, very different. Uh, when you look at them in the glass, like I said they looked exactly the same. And I said, for me, it was really cool to introduce, you know, Jonathan to a, a Cru Beaujolais, and for him to introduce me to an old vintage Cab Franc. It's really, really awesome, and I've actually had so much fun breaking these down. Yeah, so to bring out the Cab Franc, because I, I do like this Cab Franc, and I think it's one of those ones that this is their 2009, so maybe by now I'm assuming it's much different. But it's uh, I might be pronounced this right, but Bocannon Estate in Napa Valley, and honestly, it is a very delicious wine. It is definitely heavy oak handed. Um, so if you're a big fan of like, I would say honestly, if somebody came to me and said, "What should I try?" If you're like a silver oak fan, or you know, a lot of actually even floor dwelling Napa stuff where they'd use a high oak, people would love this, and I think it's a good. A good way to get people to step off from, oh, I only drink Cab Sauv. Like, if somebody said, what should I try? I'd say, okay, try this Cab Franc. They're Cuvée Louise. Um, my, because uh, it might give somebody an idea. Like, oh, I do like Cab, and I do like this. My buddy makes a Cabernet Franc that he calls the father. Because Cabernet Franc is the father of Cabernet Sauvignon. Is, yeah. With uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Yep. So for everybody who wants to know, Cabernet Sauvignon is the child of Cab Franc and Sauvignon Blanc. Gamay is the child of Pinot Noir and Pinot Blanc? No, it's like Gelé Blanc. 
Oh, so really obscure grapes. Yeah. And by the way, just to throw this out, because I, I knew this from something earlier, Cab Franc did not originate in France. It, they're pretty positive now it's been, it uh, originated in Spain and worked its way up through uh, into France, where Bordeaux made it real famous. Because um, I know the biggest places for it is, it's got to be Bordeaux and I imagine the Loire area. Uh, Gamay is the... Pretty much Justin Burgundy? Well, no, they actually grow it in other parts of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I mean, there, like, there, there's, home. A, there's a small amount of it grown in, in California. There's a small amount of it grown in Oregon. The Oregon one we had like a year ago was absolutely amazing. And I can picture the yellow label, but I just don't remember what it was. And if I find it one day, oh, man, it was so good. So, uh, you know, I think it's the fifth or sixth most planted grape in all of France. It's, it's one of their famous grapes. I mean, they, it's, they grow a ton of it over there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because Cab Franc's fifth or sixth, same thing. Like, it's in that same area of, you know, your Bordeaux varietals where they need a ton of it. But it's not a, I can't imagine there's a ton of single varietals of Cab Franc in France. So, at least Gamay-wise, they have an entire crew area, an entire village that just specializes on one grape. I mean, there's, there's towns in certain areas in Bordeaux that do are very, very heavy-handed on the Cabernet Franc. You have places in Saint-Emilion, which are very heavy-handed. I mean, you have some, some, of the, some of the garagista winemakers over there, the garage winemakers, as they were, basically. <laughs> uh, the, the Jonathan Maltuses of the world. Um, you know, his La Dome is mostly Cabernet Franc. Uh, have we ever had that one? You wrapped that one? Uh, I'm familiar with the wine. I've never actually... Yeah. Uh, I've had it a couple times, but I don't have any bottles. Oh, all right, well... I imagine by this time we're going to go through a whole bunch of stuff for a while. Yeah, I think we're on a good pace with two bottles on an episode because we can break them down. I like doing the blind tasting. I think that was really fun. Yeah, it was fun. I'm, I'm good with doing this, so definitely a bunch of times. Every now and then we'll break out. What I think we should do blind tasting just like this. We'll do a few where, you know, we'll do an entire lineup of vineyards. Like I said, the uh, the uh, Predatore and break down their five vineyards. or well, how, many, how many in total do they have for their... The Predatory Barbaresco and what goes into it. I want to say seven or nine. Yeah, because I have a ton of Barolo single vineyard ones that are all from the same producer and his seven vineyards. And So it, those of you who are actually curious about uh, Predatory single vineyards, I actually have two videos that are online of me walking the vineyards with Aldo Vaca as he's breaking down the hills saying, this this hill is where this one, this is Ovello, this is Pora, this is Asili, this is this. Then we drove to the other side of the town of Barbaresco and saw the other exposure vineyards. And he said, okay, here's Moncagota, here's Montefico, here's Monte Stefano. And I actually got to break down all the different single vineyards. This uh, Cab Franc smells like suntan lotion now. <laughs> American oak. American oak, yeah. So, so the suntan lotion. So, so, so like coconut. 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 So, so the, the two flavor profiles that really, really, sh- you know, just get thrown off of uh, American oak are going to be dill and coconut. And people are often like, really? But you just know that when yeah. you said, when you said, sun, cause if I just said coconut, people are like, really coconut. But when you say suntan lotion, that's something just that people are like, I know yeah. that. I know that scent. Like pina colada. Pina, pina colada is yep. a good way. So even when you say dill, some people might think of pickles, but it's not. If you ever have like that fresh dill flavor, it's very noticeable. Almost like where you put it on to something that you would cook it. You're like, Oh, there's that dill smell. Salmon. Salmon. That's a good example. It's very mm-hmm. common in salmon. Okay. Tartar sauce. Tartar sauce. I don't think I've had tartar sauce. I'm not a fish and chips person. Well, that's the, that's the green stuff in tartar sauce. Yeah. All right. And pickle. Well, obviously pickle. <laughs> but there's usually like little... Like there's a whole stem in the damn thing. 
I actually used to take like old cucumbers or like, so I'd eat like all the pickles out of the jar, leaving all the juice in there. And I'd be like, oh, I could just take cucumbers and throw it in there. And so I throw the cucumbers in there and just like let it soak up for a week. And it didn't work as well as I'd hoped, but. <laughs> what is up with the people with all the picklebacks? Dude, I just learned what a pickleback was this year and I hate it and I regret it. They've been around and for Lindsay, years. I know you're not listening to this podcast ever, but seriously, that was disgusting. Is it- Who takes a shot? Of pickle juice after booze. I mean, seriously? That's terrible. So is this Brandon's wife, Lindsay? No, totally different Lindsay. And actually, so my friends from Minnesota did it too. We were over at a, a Duke's sports bar right there on Miller and McDowell. And they were like, oh, let's get a shot of Jameson. And can we get a pickleback? And the bartender smiled through her finger. I'm like, what is a pickleback? And sure as shit, here's a massive amount of pickle juice with your shot. I no, will, go back to Minnesota. We don't need this nonsense here. I was, I want to say I was in Nantucket about 10 years ago, the first time I had it. And it was just like, they ordered, yeah, the pickleback. I was like, oh, what? And they poured, I was like, this is a joke. This is just like a three wise men shot. They're messing with you. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way I'm going to do oh, this. Jesus, a three. I had the three wise men on my birthday. Here, that tw- was awful. 21st? Yeah. Along with a cement mixer and a prairie fire. So I, we're kind of just. Stupid in America with this whole 21st birthday, let's just torture people. Like, why can't you go out and celebrate someone's 21st and have a good time with them? Because it's America, damn it. And we got to ruin the people on the 21st birthday so that they just chug their beer and drink their whiskeys. I just don't get, I mean, a three wise men shot is like Jim, Jack, and Jose. So it's like Jim Beam, Jack Daniels, and Jose Cuervo. It's like not yeah. even like. So my, my prairie fire was half Tabasco, half tequila. And I, you know where I was, of course, celebrating because I was working at the time. Frazier's, they threw me a nice little party. My friends came in and Frazier's threw me the nice party. He's like, hey, man, you can have a drink. Like, here's a little tab for you. Here's a ton of food. And I, that was made me so much happier. And then my friends came in who it's, I, you know what the irony of the whole situation is? Every single one of those people that was at my birthday party, I'm only like, I think it was like 15 of them. I think I'm only friends with two of them. So maybe that said something about the friends I kept around when I was turning 21 because they were like, let's get him a cement mixer. Let's get him a three wise men. Let's get him a prairie fire. Yeah, it's like, but as you get older, you want to buy your friends the great stuff. Like I I look forward to celebrating my friend's birthdays and buying like a nice bottle of wine, taking them out for a good dinner. Like you want to celebrate with them. Yeah, exactly. But when you're 21, you wanted to fuck with them. You want them to be so unhappy and so miserable that next morning because it makes you feel so good about ruining their night. I guess it does. I mean, yeah, I remember my boy, uh, we took him out for his 21st to a place that had like all you can drink uh, Long Island iced teas. Oh, God. And he, I remember him laying down in the street that night. He couldn't even walk. Right? <laughs> we're like, dude, get out of the street. Wow. I did more ice Little shout out to Johnny Roach. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. He can't, was, he's a tiny little man. He can't drink that many iced teas. Oh, gosh. I don't know how many we drank that night, but it was at, we were at Club Rio, which I've, so, that place has been bulldozed seven times over since then. So I'm trying to think of all the 21 birthday parties. I, I can remember doing one with my buddy Kyle. Uh, my buddy Jeff, same thing. We took Je- oh, so <laughs> we took our buddy Jeff out to Mill, and we bought him um, uh, what was that crappy? It was a uh, Fat Tuesdays where they had the mixing drinks on that. We got him like the one eighty one runner the, the and one eighty octanes, one eighty octanes. That's oh, what yeah. it was. Oh my god, dude, pounding those all night long. So I had a fake ID before I was twenty one, as most people at ASU did, and <laughs> I, I, there was everybody. <laughs> there was maybe three bars in town that I could not get into. So on my birthday, I decided wait. Hold on, to- I want to play this game. I think I know what three bars they were. 
Dos Gringos, Devil's Ad, or what's that? Oh, it's now Devil's Ad. It was right in the corner of University and and Scottsdale Road, which is what McKellops? No, not McKellops. Well, it was rural. Before it was Devil's Advocate, it was Bojo's. Yeah, but Bojo's was a place I went to. But it was right next door to that. Either way, I'm and uh, uh, Mikhail's because everybody always went to those ones. We used to go to Mikhail's. Mikhail's was never a problem to get into. Oh, uh, of course. So. She went to my high school, so uh, <laughs> I think all the Mikhail's were yeah, closing. O- over near where uh, Devil's Advocate was, was Maloney's. Maloney's. Had the giant beer mugs, the steins there. That was the, I think it's now the shady Irish something. bar. Yeah. It's now Shady something. Shady Park. It might be, yeah. Yeah. So that was a place that you, they were such sticklers. And they took everyone's IDs, so it was like, I didn't even, never even tried they to get They probably had to, man. Being on Mill. Fat Tuesday. Fat Tuesday. That's it, man. Fat Tuesday is yep. where everybody goes to ruin their night. So, because I couldn't get in there with my fake ID, but as soon as I turned 21, it was like, bam, I'm going there. And you know what? The two places we went. Rulabula. I, I hated both of them. Did I they never have wanted to go there. I, I, I don't think Rulabula, when I turned 21, it was still like Crocodile Cafe or something like that down there. Oh, I don't even know. So, yeah, probably. Actually, Crocodile was the, became the big, big fat Greek restaurant. Uh, Mill okay. Avenue has changed over so many times. I mean, what a great little street of nothing but bars. But yeah, they got to be sticklers. The college is—it's college. It's literally ASU is part of your street. <laughs> yeah, college of, or a street of bars next to a university where three quarters of the population is not twenty-one. Yeah, you're going to college. You're eighteen, nineteen, twenty. We'd we'd always drive down to anything south of like Southern or Baseline, which is like two, three miles south of ASU, where it was the divey bars that didn't care at that but, point. But there was a place down there I couldn't get into either. Uh, Pompeii. I don't know, Pompeii. Oh, my God. It's been like, it was like five other restaurants. But I remember they were kind of like sticklers, too. I found one behind the QT on Baseline and Real called Doc and Eddie's that me and my buddy walked into. I remember into, Doc man. and Eddie's. Doc and Eddie's, man. Doc and Eddie's did not care. I mean, they did because they definitely took a lot of people's IDs. But the second we were 21, they were just like, all right, cool. It was dollar shot night. I mean, there was that one bar that closed down right by ASU. They used to do five cent Coronas. And you buy a dollar shot, you get a five cent Corona all day on Saturday for the ASU games. Uh, the what used to be the original Dose became like Flip Flops or Beach House or whatever. Yeah, but didn't that place go under because John Taffer? What's that guy's name who fixes bars? I'm not sure. I I know he went in there, did all the renovations, and they went. That's not up to code, so they shut them all down. I I know what was the original Dose Gringos closed because there was some shady stuff that went on. I don't even know what it was. I heard rumors. Surprise! It's the bar business. I mean, it's just think about the liquor business in general. Yeah. It's been run by the mob for how many years Ever. back in the day? Like it was. I do like your point though that when you're 21, everybody wants to ruin each other for you know their drinking stuff. But now that we're older, like um, my best friend just turned 30 back in December, and I got him like an extremely nice bottle of scotch, and I was like, oh, I know he'll appreciate that. And plus, I'll end up drinking at least like a quarter of it with him. So yeah, like my friends turned 21, like we didn't get them like a nice. Like bomber a beer or nothing like that. You tortured him, ruined him, <laughs> ruined him, absolutely ruined him. But like, all right, let's just make sure he's barely alive. Not like really alive, but like, is he still breathing? Yeah. Is he on his stomach? Yeah. Okay, he's fine. Let him be. <laughs> it's weird, weird thing that our society does when you're young. I mean, we were just watching something about frat houses and the hazing and how horrible it is. I mean, the fact that someone wants to join a frat house, you basically have to drink to the point where you're on your deathbed. Yeah, I wonder, I'd like to go to other countries and see what, and I don't know if being 21 is a, I guess, a, like a drinking tradition or just the fact that you're turning 21, it's like just a tradition that we need to do like a Vegas thing. But I mean, we're from Arizona, so, you know, I had a bunch of friends turn 21, we all went to Vegas because, oh, got to go to Vegas, got to go to Vegas. But if you're on the East Coast, we do like Atlantic City, I'm guessing maybe. But like, is it just an American thing that you turn 21 and your friends are going to absolutely try and 
devastating. Yes. They're taking a year off your life for sure. Versus I wonder like the rest of the country is like, oh, you're turning, I don't know, 18, 19, 17, 16, whatever their drinking age. And if they don't have one, like clearly they don't care. Uh, uh, other countries look at alcohol and treat alcohol very, very different. Um, they will introduce it to their children <laughs> in a casual family manner. And you drink in the house. So when you turn 21, you're not, woohoo, got to go out and get wasted because you're like, I've, it's always been around my house. Like we always had wine growing up. We always had this. It was no, it wasn't like, let's go blow out. Yeah. Where in America, we tell people you can't have it, you can't have it, you can't have it. You get to like college, and you're like, oh, I can now sneak some, or I can steal some out of my parents' basement, you know. So, so it gets to the point where you can finally have it, and you just go overboard. Yeah, and I, it's definitely. So, I mean, I got lucky enough with like parents being kind of cool to be like, okay, you can have like a little wine, and by a little wine, I mean like the equivalent of like one two ounces, just to kind of try. And I hated wine. I hated wine back then. I was like, this is disgusting. Why would anybody ever drink it? So when we used to have like our parties in high school, whoever brought the rolling rock was king dingling of the night. So that's how we drank. But then once as I got older, I stopped drinking way more, maybe because I was lucky enough to have it introduced to me. But I had a Mormon friend who the second he got out of high school and we got to college, dude, he jumped off the deep end and went full blown alcoholic for like two, three years. And I'm just like, oh, that's that's I wonder if that was because the way he was brought up or because, you know. He just he he was naturally an alcoholic or something like that. I don't know. I mean, it's I think everything's different. I just find it weird that our tradition of you turning twenty one is we're going to make it the, the funnest party for you, but we're definitely going to make sure you don't remember it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's that whole forbidden fruit. It's the fact that you went through the first twenty years of your life saying you can't have this, and now you get to have as much as you want. And then I just think they're also. At 20 years old, a lot of people are just assholes, and they just want to screw their friends. <laughs> I mean, I was an asshole back then. God, 21-year-olds are the worst people. So about how much does your uh, the wine that you brought cost? Uh, what's the approximate like uh, I think, retail price? I think this thing was 30 bucks. 30 bucks. Yeah, and the only reason I got it was, like I said, because it's an 09. I figured, why take a shot on a really old yep. bottle of Cab Franc from so, Napa Valley? I think it's a great price. So I thought the St. Amour, it was about $20 out the door. Yeah. It was extraordinarily reasonable for what we paid. I, for me, that $20 price point is kind of the happy zone for wine. Yeah. I think one day we should do a really obscure one where it's like, all right, we got a $15 bottle, a $30 bottle, and then like reach for a Jesus Christ. I can't believe you spent that much money on a bottle. Pull one out of a cellar that's like $100, $150 just to do a comparison on with blind tasting more or less, like see if price really makes that big of a difference. Oh, when we bring Joey the Heel on, we can have him bring some fun stuff too. Yeah, Joey the Heel. Can't wait. Y'all to have... No idea what you're in store for for Joey the Heel. I can't wait to record with that guy. It's going to be hilarious. It is going to be one of the funnest conversations ever. You are going to probably be offended. You're definitely going to laugh. It's just going to be fantastic. Seriously, I got to download some new virus stuff from my computer because my computer might just get diseased listening to him. Oh, you got to put a special mic out there for him just so it doesn't get <laughs> like infected. Come in one day and the mic is just bleeding and dying. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if this was something... We'll definitely do a little more often. We'll just kind of jump all over the board with some unique tastings. I'm a big fan of this gamay even more now. It's been opening up nicely. Yeah, really cool wine. So what we'll do is we'll we'll go down the cruise too. You know, I said now you've had say to more the the, <laughs> easy, the easiest one for you to pronounce. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. This was a pretty good episode as far as not making you pronounce anything like too bad though. Yeah, well, it's one of what five so far that I didn't have to pronounce too much, with the exception of you know. The crew regions. <laughs> Gonna come up with like a, a hashtag for you, like hashtag like Jonathan Butchers or Jonathan like. Hashtag yeah, I don't even know what to do. A hashtag on that one. Hashtag is just jumbled letters. <laughs> 
ASDF, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah. Chateau, blah, 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 tries again today. That's going to be, I'll do my nickname for like an Instagram. Chateau, blah, 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 attempted again to try something new. So we're officially on iTunes now. Excellent. Uh, we'll be on Spotify here pretty soon. Is Even this, better. Is that Spotify, the other streaming service? It's one of them. Spotify, SoundCloud, SoundMixer. Not SoundCloud. Blah, 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 Sa- SoundCloud is actually a hosting service. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, Spotify streams. And right uh, now we're using Podbean. I like Podbean. I've been enjoying that. Yeah, but I mean, the iTunes one is the biggest one because everybody pops in there for the most part. Yeah, well, iTunes is not the host. iTunes is just the facilitator. Where you go. But yeah. for anyone listening, it's the easiest way to find us, too, is always on iTunes. You can subscribe through iTunes. And eventually get a website up and going, so we'll have an email out. If you ever need to contact and complain about how terrible I pronounce things, we could do that. Instagram will be up shortly as well. Yeah, piece by piece, it all comes together. Moving along. Yep. It was a good one. I like this one today. So, wrap this up. Let's do it. Perfect. Let's just hang out and drink these wines for a little bit. Even better. So What's today, I, Friday? So, yeah. I'll, I'll post the name of it, but the uh, uh, Saint Amour was from Le Pierre. It was actually a 2015. Don't be afraid to get... Uh, uh, Cru Beaujolais with a couple years of age on it. Um, 14s, 15s, 16s will all be drinking great right now. For not Beaujolais Nouveau. Not Beaujolais Nouveau and not the Beaujolais Village. Village you would want probably buy a 17. You don't want to buy a 15. Cause it's still, you want something still very, very fresh. But any crew, like I was debating getting a 14 or a 15. I just opted for the 15. Um, plus, I'm a little more familiar with St. Amour than I am with some of the other ones because I used to represent some St. Amour. And then uh, the Cabernet Franc is from Bocannon estate it's their cuvee louis napa valley cabernet franc and it was a 2009 vintage which is just a nice little steal to find in a wine shop um finding an old vintage like that you know it's very rare you can find a a nine-year-old wine it's been you know they're still drinking great in a wine shop yeah and if you're in a wine shop and you want to take a shot at doing like if you just happen to be around you see oh it's 14 and 15 this cabin there's one buried in there that's a nine take a shot at it sometimes it's just so much better to get that aged wine So with that, guys, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you again. Awesome. Thanks, y'all. Appreciate it. Cheers, y'all. Cheers.